Welcome to the DICE podcast, celebrating diversity and inclusion in the workplace with your host, Mina. We have Quinn Roche from TUC. Quinn, hello, how are you? Hi, good morning. Yeah, I'm really well. Thank you so much for, for having me on, the, on your podcast. I'm very excited. That's great to have you on board because, you, of course, you've just been a speaker at This Is Us conference, um, which which went really well. So I was really keen for you to come on the podcast to talk about the disability pay gap that we have um, at the moment, because I know you've just done um, a recent report. And it seems that disabled people experience significant barriers to actually getting jobs in the first place. And then when they get the job, they have a, a barrier or a challenge to actually keep their job as well, which, of course, um, increases um, uh, the, the, the pay gap of around 30 percent, if I'm not mistaken, according to a recent report. But it does show that people do face this double discrimination. Um, and not only are they less likely to have a paid job, but when they do, they have a significant less earning than their non-disabled peers. So first of all, can you just um, give us a quick intro about your role within TUC and how that then resonates with your report that you've just conducted on the pay gap of disabled people? Yeah, no, absolutely. So um uh, I'm the policy officer at the TUC who leads our disabled workers policy and our LGBT plus policy. Um, and I've been doing that for about three years. And in my role, I work with activists across the trade union movement um, who are LGBT plus and disabled to really help identify the key issues and barriers they face at work and the strategies for removing them. Um, this year is actually the third year I've done a report which looks at the disability pay gap. Um, and, you know, you're absolutely right. Disabled workers face double discrimination. They are less likely to be in work. And when they are in work, they are paid less than their non-disabled peer. Um, you know, and what I've been able to do over the last three years is track progress to closing these gaps. Um, and I guess the, the funny thing is, in the last two years, the employment gap has, has reduced by, like, very, very minutely, but it has reduced, uh, while the pay gap has actually increased, um, and this year it's increased quite dramatically. So um, last year it was 15.5%. This year it is... 20%, so that means disabled workers on average earn a fifth less than their non-disabled peers. And uh, you you quoted a statistic earlier, and you're absolutely right. Um, the employment gap for disabled women when compared to non-disabled men is 36%. Uh, and that means that disabled women on average have earned 6,700 pounds less than non-disabled men when you kind of uh, do a calculation which is based on a 35 hour working week so the gap is it's massive and it's increasing um you know and, and it's one of the things that i am really passionate about because actually the government um work program around this only ever focuses really on closing the employment gap and so you know what we're seeing is that it is closing at the slowest pace at the same time, disabled workers are actually earning substantially less. And 
I think that is because of the types of jobs <laughs> that disabled workers are getting. They're not good jobs. They're gig economy jobs. And that's really um, hugely problematic. So those statistics are absolutely quite shocking to hear in this day and age, do you not think? I think they're hugely shocking. Um, do you know what I mean? And the thing is, last year at this time, I did a calculation to say like, okay, well, the employment gap, based on the rate of change, it'll close in 37 years. I can't do that for the pay gap. It's increasing. It's not closing. I can't tell you when the pay gap is going to end. I can only tell you it's getting worse. Um, and I think where we are right now, you know, with the coronavirus pandemic and the recession, for me, that is a, a major cause of concern and fear, because I think the progress we've made is going to end. I think what we know from the 2008 recession was that disabled workers were amongst the first people to lose their jobs. They were the last people to be reemployed. Um, and if they kept their jobs through the recession, what they experienced were negative in-work changes to their terms and conditions. So they were uh, refused overtime, um, you know, given worse tasks and had some of the benefits reduced. So, you know, I, I'm concerned at this report's findings. I'm concerned that we're going into recession and things are going to get worse. And I should have said up front and center that this year's research is almost 100% outside of the pandemic. So it's a four quarter analysis of the labor force survey. Three of those quarters were at a time when there was no coronavirus. And only the last quarter took place while there was the pandemic taking place, but it took place at a time when there was um, the job retention scheme. So actually the findings of this report do not reflect the impact of the pandemic and the recession. So the pandemic that we're facing at the moment and obviously the forthcoming recession will only impact negatively more on disabled people, which is actually, of course, absolutely not right, especially in this day and age. I mean, we should actually be moving forward and not backwards. But we seem to be, as a society, moving backwards in terms of acknowledging the positives of any minority group. Um, so why do you think that disabled people are the first to lose their job and the last to re-employ? What makes employers make that rash decision? Okay, so there, the causes of the gap, there, there are usually two causes. Um, well, two groups of causes, I should say. There are the groups of causes that I can tell you from a statistical basis. And then there are the causes that we know are taking place, which you can't quantify. So if we're to talk about the rationale for the gap, what I can tell you from a statistical analysis is that the gap exists because a higher proportion of disabled people than non-disabled people work part-time. Uh, I can tell you that disabled uh, workers tend to be overrepresented in lower paying jobs, like um, in care and leisure uh, services and sales, customer services, um, and they're less represented in kind of senior and managerial roles. The statistics also do this thing where they point to education. And so I think there's research for a long, you know, there's research that stretches back years and years, which shows that disabled people have lower educational attainment. Um, but that's a cop out. People will say it's educational attainment. That's why disabled people earn less. It's not true because what I have done is I have kind of 
did an analysis that this kind of strictly looked at disabled people and non-disabled people and qualifications. And what we find is that even when disabled people have the same level qualifications as non-disabled people, there is a pay gap. Um, when I did that in 2018, the pay gap was two pounds. Uh, so it was actually higher. Um, so, you know, education isn't really a reason, but it's something people point to and I just wanted to explain. So those are what you can do when you look at statistics. But we know that the causes of the gap are actually additionally intrinsically linked to unlawful discrimination. Uh, there are structural barriers in place which stop disabled people from achieving their full potential. Um, and so, you know, we really need to focus on those and also the negative attitude society has towards disabled people. Those are real causes of the pay gap. Absolutely. Um, and, and again, it goes to, go, goes kind of back to so many minority groups getting affected quite negatively in the workplace. And um, with disabled people, so it just seems they seem to be a lot more affected. And um, you're right, people have this notion of disabled people not being able to achieve a task or not having the skills in order to pr promote them into senior management or senior leadership positions, which of course is wrong because absolutely there are disabled people out there who are highly educated or who have the skills to progress, but it's just giving that opportunity. So what can, what can employers do, first of all, to attract disabled people or disabled talent into their workforce? And once they're in the workforce, how can they support them to progress into senior management positions? Because that's what we want, don't we? We want to close that gap where we see more non-disabled or non-minority people in senior leadership positions because of who, who or how they identify as. We want to see that gap closing. So what can employers do to attract disabled people into the workplace? And what can they do to really support them achieve their goals? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. I mean, the thing that we need to keep in mind is that disabled people are just like everybody else. They have great experience. They come with high levels of skills and great motivation. Um, and what's preventing them from kind of progressing in the workplace are these negative attitudes and structural barriers. And those are the things employers should be really focusing on. So I'm going to say I'm going to say two things. One is that no individual employer's action is going to address the national um, pay gap because it's a structural thing and it's at the national level, which is why one of the things the TUC are calling for is mandatory pay gap reporting for disabled workers. And that's that's a different thing. But if I was to give employers advice on things that they can do to kind of address any gaps that they have um, identified themselves, I would kind of say that one, they, they shouldn't really be waiting for the government to bring in mandatory disability pay gap reporting. I mean, I'm going to make sure that happens. Um, so what they should be doing now is thinking about the things they can do to address that gap before the law comes in. So I would say it's kind of the standard things like looking to see where you have a problem, collecting relevant information on disabled workers, where they are within your organization, how you do on recruitment and promotion thinking about where you advertise your roles, how you make it clear that you um, that you treat your employees fairly, including your disabled employees, or those people who are thinking about applying for roles. It's looking at your pay and remuneration to make sure there's no structural barriers and that you're getting it right. Um, making sure that 
training is being given to all your employees. Um, so these are kind of the things you can start to do. And really it's that, those are your big thoughts and you're thinking, what is my data telling me? And you use that data where those gaps are to design action plans. So what we really wanna see every employer do is use their monitoring data to identify their gaps, to develop action plans on how they will address them. Because we think the action plans you know, are, are what will drive the change and they should really be kind of working with their own disabled people, their disabled employees, I should say, and their unions to develop those. Um, and I think, you know, if we're gonna talk about things that they can do, um, employers can do with recruitment, they should really look at doing things around um, positive action and using positive action as a way of, of addressing any um, recruitment imbalances. And, you know, I think people talk about positive action and no one really knows what it means. So a couple of practical things you can do is hosting an open day specifically for disabled people to encourage them to get into a particular field or area of, that you employ people in. Um, or offering training or internships to help disabled workers get an opportunity uh, or opportunities to progress at work. So just a couple of practical um, positive actions employers can take. I really like those actually. I really like the fact that um, positive action can be sort of um, taken on board to really help and highlight the value of disabled people and really um, giving them a sense of belonging. I really like the open day for disabled people. I think that's a fantastic opportunity, which really makes disabled people feel inclusive and makes them as an employer to concentrate on those disabled people for that day to really understand what they bring to an organisation rather than um, being mixed up in, in the whole crowd and not being able to dedicate time and attention to the skills and the value and the experience that disabled people bring to a workplace. Love that. I also really, really love the training and internship in an organisation as well for disabled people because then, again, that gives them another avenue and another positive opportunity to show what they're made of. It's, it's, it's just about giving them that opportunity in the beginning, which is so important. And also not only when they're coming into the workforce in terms of training and internship, but some sort of sponsorship from the employer's perspective for the disabled person to help them progress into a leadership position. So whether that means a mentoring program, whether that means sending them on a specific skills program, whatever that might be, that sponsorship internally is really, really valuable as a disabled person progresses within the workplace. So um, I really do like those positive action assignments that you've just mentioned, Quinn. And I think a lot of companies should actually take that on board. Recruitment fairs, and for example, you know, I organize corporate events. So I organize trade fairs and exhibitions. So organizing a recruitment fair well, why don't we have one day to dedicate it to either minority people or disabled people? What a fantastic idea that is. I, I absolutely agree. Um, you know, and I think that whole point that you bring about um, intersectional identities is really, really valuable. Um, we know that, you know, my research basically finds that you know, disabled women have the largest pay gap. Um, and if you look at the employment gap, it's um, BME disabled 
people who have the largest employment gap. So thinking about intersectional identities and thinking about what you can do is it, it, so vastly important. But if I had to say one other point about something an employer could do, it's this point about reasonable adjustments. So our members, disabled trade unionists, tell us that the hardest thing that they face when in work is getting the reasonable adjustments implemented and put in place. And then what they say is once they're in place, the moment their line manager changes or they move jobs, they find they have to renegotiate those reasonable adjustments again. So another really practical tool that employers can be looking to use, in addition to kind of great things um, like sponsorship and positive actions, is um, something called a reasonable adjustments disability passport. And then what it does is just documents the agreements that have been made and enables them to move easily and swiftly with, uh, with an employee, with a worker as they move jobs. Or um, when the line manager changes, they can actually just see this document about what has been agreed and keep them in place. That's another really easy thing an employer can do. And if they're looking for an off-the-shelf version of what this looks like, go to the TUC's website. We have a free one there that you can use. That's fantastic. And employers, you know, have no excuse that, it, oh, it costs too much money or, you know, we don't know where to start because there is content available. As you say, from the TU website, there's a, a free template where employers can use. So, again, a really small but impactful thing or um activity shall we say that an employer can actually take on to make a disabled person feel more inclusive within that organization that's fantastic and going back to reasonable adjustments and what you were saying earlier about the employer working with the employee and, and the trade union absolutely it's definitely about having those open communications flowing and it's definitely um, a two-way street i mean the disabled person should be able to have the um the comfort of knowing that they can actually speak up and they can actually have a voice in their organization and actually express their concerns i mean i was talking to somebody else a couple of days ago and um they were talking about you know race identity and having somebody um on on the board who represents each minority so they all have a voice and just have a have a couple of hours where it's um the Chatham Charter, I think it's called, or the, where you have like a very open discussion and nothing that you say is taken in a, in a bad way. It's all very positive for senior management to take on board. So another small step that employers can take to make their disabled employees feel more comfortable and more inclusive in the workplace because at the end of the day disabled people are people they just want to go about their daily lives and earn a living like everybody else so why should they be marginalized or discriminated against because they're disabled no exactly you're absolutely right and i think the other thing just to say is you know obviously the the equality act 2010 puts a legal duty on employers to put in place reasonable adjustments to remove, reduce, or prevent any disadvantages disabled workers face. So some of the most simple things they can do can ensure that they comply with their legal obligations. And a passport is the most simple thing they can do, because I mean, really, it is it's super easy. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I, I love everything you're talking about. It's all so important. Um, and again, you know, that intersectional 
um, identities are, are, are valid and we should be thinking that way. Absolutely. So we've talked about so many different things, simple and effective actions that employers can take. So I really do hope that employers who are listening to this podcast today will actually take on board what we've just discussed and actually implement it into their workplace because it will just help them at the end of the day. It will increase productivity within their organization. And which of course, when we know when productivity is increased, it's because employees are happy in their everyday job because we spend so much time at work or in a working environment more than we do at home, that is important not to have any sort of um, upset or discrimination or any ill feelings about why we identify as we are or how we identify. Yeah, yeah and that, that, practi- that productivity point is so true. And also it helps them retain their talent, you know, and helps them identify who actually has talent you know, you remove the barriers disabled people face, you suddenly see how productive they are and what talent and resource they can be for for the employer. Absolutely. That brings us to the close of our podcast. I really appreciate your time today, Quinn, as always. And I always like to get to know my guests on on a personal basis because we are, as I said, we are all people. And I really like to get to know my guests on an individual basis. So I'm going to ask you what your favorite film is and why it's your favorite film. What a good question. What is my favorite film? Okay, well, I'll go with the the film that came straight to mind. it was practical magic. Um, and I think I am just someone who has lots of faith in humanity um, and also a slight addiction to fantasy fiction. Great. Interesting. Um, thank you so much, Quinn. And I will speak again soon, no doubt. No doubt. Thank you very much. Speak soon. Bye. Contact us by emailing welcome at diversityinconferencesandevents.co.uk for all your diversity and inclusion needs. Why not visit our website today or follow us on social media? 